Welcome to Voices of Resilience, a special series from the Vital Voices podcast, where we're sharing stories of courage, commitment, innovation, and perseverance from women leaders in unprecedented crisis. I'm your host, Elise Nelson. Today, I'm really grateful to be speaking with a longtime Vital Voices Network member, honoree, and just phenomenal leader, Jamira Burley. Jamira is an internationally recognized social justice advocate, youth activist, speaker, and a consultant on a mission to lead systematic and sustainable change that improves the lives of young people across the globe. And today, with the tragic death of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and Ahmaud Arbery, among too many familiar preventable events of brutality, we're speaking with her about what's going on and getting her perspective on the situation. Please note that the content in this discussion may be triggering for some listeners. Jamira, thank you so much for joining us. I know you are incredibly busy. I feel like you are educating and informing the world on what is going on. Um, and I, I can imagine it is a lot of pressure, but also quite time consuming. So thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to your friends at Vital Voices. No, of course. I'm always honored to be a part of the Vital Voices family. So this is, this is like a nice little break from everything else. Oh, well, certainly all over the country and, and really quite frankly, all over the world. Um, we are just weighed with the heaviness of the events of the past week. Um, but unfortunately for so many, these feelings are all too familiar. Um, for listeners not in the U.S., can you tell us a little bit about what's been going on, a little bit about the, the tragic deaths that we've seen, certainly of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, that have really gripped the nation? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, I said earlier to someone that this is a moment of reckoning in the United States, um, a country that is very much still young compared to many nations around the world. Um, and it's a reckoning that is forcing America to look at the racial inequalities in this country that have been triggered, that have triggered the discussion after um, so many countless murders of unarmed black folks in the United States, um, people who were sitting in their car people who were laying in their bed, um, people who were just moving throughout society um, who have been brutalized and oftentimes murdered by the police. And so what you're seeing, not only just all across America, but even in 18 countries that participated in protests, is a call to action, right? Is the recognition that Black Lives Matter and that um, in a time where systems have for too long have oppressed have um, have limited the possibility of African Americans from getting gaining access to resources and wealth. Um, that many people are starting to recognize the systematic implications of that and calling for the government to do something. Um, and one of those suggestions have been to reevaluate what safety means for Black and Brown communities, and in many cases, when necessary, to abolish the traditional version of police, which in the United States context is rooted. Um, and systematic oppression all the way back, and which can be documented all the way back to slavery. Mm. I feel like this moment is different than past mm -hmm. moments, you know, where, where we have experienced this. I mean, I, I was living in LA uh, during the Rodney King riots and, um, you know, it was, it was, I was in high school at that time. And, you know, I remember, I mean, it was just the, the city was on fire. Um, yeah but not much seemed to change. And then, you know, I mean, 
obviously we, we have seen this and seen this and seen this and, you know, you experience it in a, in a very different way than I experiencing it. But what, what, I mean, do you feel it's different? Is it just me who feels it different? I mean, I was telling you before, I mean, I, as a white woman who thinks of myself as progressive and socially conscious and has dedicated my life to being an activist for women, I feel a lot more awake right now. And I don't know what, what it was that shook me so hard that basically said, wait a minute, you have to be a stronger voice. So are you hearing that from other people? You feel like this, there's something different about this time? I do feel like it's something different. Um, I think in the abstract um, context, you know, I think we are sitting at a moment of, of the perfect storm, um, right? Over the last few years, you've seen the discrimination, you've seen the uprising, not just here in the U.S., but around the world of people who have been asking more of their government um, at a time where we've seen the income and inequality, um, both here in the U.S. and around the world. So I think during this global pandemic, which you, you've seen is that a lot of folks have become more aware of just how um, oppressive and um, just how oppressive the government has been to communities of color and to poor folks. And so I think it is the opportunity for people to learn more and see more. And it, it doesn't help that most folks are home because of unemployment. And so a lot of folks who normally didn't have the privilege to actually participate in some form of protest now have more time on their hands. Um, but I think it feels different personally, because I've been to a number of protests over the last few weeks, and I participated in the protests during the Ferguson uprising, during the Baltimore uprising, and during Baton Rouge uprising just five years ago. And it feels different because not just of the type of people that are showing up to these marches, the different social economic classes that are participating, the people who are organizing the marches are much younger. And also, I've seen many instances during marches where our white allies actually have used, physically used their bodies to be a barrier between the police and black protests, which I've never seen before. And it, it gave me chills because I think people are, one, recognizing their level of privilege, but more importantly, are sharing that privilege to help protect the lives of those who they're marching with. That, you know, young people have a better sense of when we talk about racism, it doesn't just mean individual feelings or discrimination against someone else. We're actually talking about a system and how that system has been utilized to um, criminalize as well as marginalize communities for so long. And so it feels really good to be in this moment. And it feels good to be in this moment because I feel like the vast majority of people who don't look like me value my life and are willing to to fight for it. Mm, yeah. I have to say I have found it incredibly inspiring. Um and 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 also, you know, to see it being ignited around the world. Yeah. I mean it's just it's it's incredibly inspiring to see who is getting out there. And I do feel like you're right. I mean it is it is so much of this younger generation who just demands more. And I just mm -hmm. it's it's an incredible thing to see and, and, and to see what, what they will do with this and, and how they are demanding, they're demanding more in a different world. Yeah. It so, makes me think back. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it makes me think back for when I started activism, being, becoming an activist and I created Jim, why not? Right. It was the under the ideology of, you know, I'm a young person and people are telling me this is how the world works, but why? Why can't we have this? Why can't the world be this way? Why can't 
um, people have um, be able to participate in this form of, of governance. And I think that's is is more reflective also in this generation who are asking, you know, are confused about how we've run this country, how we've ran this world for so long, and are asked and continuing to ask the question why, um, and are not and are not excited or um, okay with the responses that they're getting back, either direct responses or how the police have been responding in general. Mm. Tell us what's been going on in New York. I, I know you've been you've been really active there. <laughs> I mean, it's the Sleep epicenter, in. right? Yeah. Um, in many ways, both for the coronavirus and the fact that you have young people almost in every borough that are organizing protests daily. Um, and I really want to make it clear for folks who don't understand the correlation between the coronavirus and race relations in this country is that you know what has come to to bear over the last few months is that. African-Americans, poor minorities are mostly affected by the coronavirus, right? Um, by these diseases that are oftentimes abstract, but are, are infiltrating our communities and because of the government response. And so for people to still know that they are most likely going to be impacted by this virus, to still put their bodies on the line to advocate, I think it should be a glaring view to everyone watching just how important this moment is, but more importantly, um, how fed up people are. And there have been marches every single day in New York. We still are under curfew, um, eight o'clock curfew, um, because communities everywhere are uprising, are demanding more from the government, are telling the New York governor and the New York mayor, Bill de Blasio and um, Cuomo, to defund um, and abolish the police in its current form. And I know it's scary when a lot of people say, well, what do you mean abolish the police? Who will who will solve this crime? If we look at the vast majority of crimes that police actually manage that are not nonviolent, they're less than 2%. So yes, there should be some form of law enforcement in this country, but not as it currently is designed. What we need is more counselors. What we need are more school after-school programs. What we need are more social services that actually um, alleviate the blight in many communities versus using, utilizing the police to fill the void of many of the social services that have been defunded over the last few years. And if you're really angry about the, the possibility of defunding and demilitarizing the police, we should recognize that education and social services have been defunded for generations. And we now are spending way more on public safety than we are on the vast majority of other social, um, social needs for our communities. And it hasn't done us justice. And so um, I'm, I'm excited to be in New York, um, but every day I know that if I go out to a march, I can either be arrested or I can contract the coronavirus. So it's a, unfortunately, it's, an, it's a no-win situation, but it's a necessary situation. Hmm. You know, as you, as you talk about the police and, and how safe communities are really established, I mean, it really is about mm -hmm. the community taking responsibility. And you... You learned that lesson very early. Um, I would love for you to just say a minute about your beginnings as an activist and the, the work that you began to do in high school. Yeah, um, it was very much a gut reaction. Um, in 2005, my brother Andre was shot and killed in Philadelphia. And it was a moment of clarity to me, one, because I, I, while growing up, I saw a lot of violence. I saw, I participated in a lot of funerals and it was almost a way of life. I assumed that these things just happened. But I think when I lost my brother, that actually was the first time I asked myself, but why, right? Why are these things happening? 
and why are there no one um, talking about it or doing more about it? And for me, I wanted to ensure that no one else felt the way I did when my brother was murdered. And so I created an anti-violence program in my high school um, that was later implemented across the city of Philadelphia in the top 10 dangerous high schools. And I think through that process, I realized that, you know, violence is a is a result of so many other systematic problems and within our community. And through that process, I learned that I could be a voice to not only talk about my experience and contextualize what was actually happening so people didn't see the murder of my brother as just another number um, or just another burial site, but as a human being who lost their life, who unnecessarily lost their life. And, um, you know, I continue to now do, do this work with the ideology that I was a young person who had an idea, who was able to implement that idea um, and, and fill a void where the government wasn't filling it, which is to train young people to be violence interrupters, right? They didn't, they didn't use force. They didn't arrest anyone. They taught young people how to talk about their emotions, how to advocate for themselves, and how to find healing and reconciliation when they were harmed or they themselves harmed someone else. And I think that's what we're missing in our communities. We don't teach young people, particularly young men, how to deal with their emotions and it transforms into toxic masculinity, which is why we see the numbers of um, sexual abuse and physical abuse. Um, and so it bleeds into so many other avenues. But I now do the work that I do with the understanding that if young people have ideas, how can I help to pave the way for them to get the solutions or the resources that they need to be able to activate those ideas in real time? Mm. And you talked before about defunding the police. Um, mm -hmm. and, and certainly, I know that that is, you know, a, a, a critical concept that, that obviously, I mean, as you just explained, people don't, don't really understand exactly what that means. What are some of the other changes that protesters and organizers are asking for right now? People are asking for accountability, right? Um, this is the only, in, in the United States, if you want to commit a crime, to be absolutely honest, you join the military or you join the police force. Um, and I say that because there is an extreme lack of accountability um, mechanisms there. Across the United States, there are more than 16,000 police forces. There is not a universal and national standard on the use of force um, that is universal for the entire United States. And in my previous life, uh, we found that um, in the United States, we are actually using a standard of force that is against human rights standards. And so a lot of the things that other activists are asking for, one is a national standard on the use of force, um, is a, um, a, a national tracking mechanism for police departments to be able to um, actually publish the behavior reports and the um, the the background reports of police officers before they're hired um, because you have a lot of police officers who when they commit a crime and are um, are facing disciplinary action will just quit their job and go to another police force and their record oftentimes do not follow them um, we're also asking for um, when police officers commit murder you know when they do something that is actually what they're supposed to be preventing other people from doing that there is an external investigation that does not include the da because we recognize da's have to work with police um, and that they are prosecuted. And so there is dozens of examples of what can happen or what should happen in order to make our criminal justice system that much more um, safe and holistic. Um, I would also say there needs to be, a, there is a need 
to eliminate the blue coat of silence that police officers oftentimes fall trapped to um, because you have an officer who may commit a crime and all of his comrades will protect him instead of um, you know, protecting the law or protecting the individual that's been harmed. Hmm. And can you talk about the responses that you've seen to the protests? I mean, obviously, we, we, we can see it on TV through whatever lens the various yeah. news channel is playing it through. Um, it's kind of crazy right now to go back and forth between, you know, MSNBC or CNN to Fox and see how differently they're talking about what's happening on the streets. Yeah, I mean, the way Fox tells it is that, you know, people are still burning down buildings and that's totally not the case. Um, I will say, I do think that, I, I will say, I think the news is much better than it was during the murder of Michael Brown a few years ago, um, or even during the Rodney King um, beating. Um, I do think the news is finally, to some extent, <laughs> are finally finding a balance between, you know, sensationalized news while also actually showing what's happening in real time. And that, for instance, um, it took a few days, but finally the news were calling out police officers for actually inciting violence or actually um, they themselves participating in the breaking of property or damaging of property. And so I think there is a balance, but I want to say that's why social media is so important is because people can tell their stories themselves. They can actually record what's happening. They can do their own investigation. Um, BET actually has a show called Cop Watch, which are activists around the city of New York that are documenting police interactions with citizens. We shouldn't have to do that. Um, but I will say that allows us to now take the power back and we sh and, and not waiting for cable news or mainstream media to tell our stories in a way that's actually reflective of what's happening. Mm. Wow. Can we talk a minute about um, Breonna Taylor? Because I, I mean, the horrific situation did not get the exposure it should have really until after George Floyd's death, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I really feel like it was skipped over. And I, I, I don't want to take anything away from, you know, highlighting obviously the terrible brutality and violence against black men. But I feel like sometimes that same level of um, visibility doesn't happen when mm -hmm. black women are killed. And, you know, you think about it, I mean, she was in her house, you know, the, the people they were looking for were already in custody. I mean, this, it's just, it, it's ridiculous, beyond ridiculous. And then just, you know, the, I, I'm sure you know more details than I do, but I mean, it's just shocking to me when I think about how, I mean, this is just, this, this isn't, this isn't, this doesn't sound like the country I think I live in, you know, when, you, when yeah. they're basically like lying on police reports um, I mean, it's just, it's absolutely shocking. And the fact that it, it, it wasn't, there wasn't that outcry, it seems, until there was this larger outcry. No, that's totally accurate. And for those who don't know about Breonna Taylor, um, she was 26 years old. She was sleeping in her bed uh, with her boyfriend in a state that, and I'll give this as a caveat, in a state that's one, it's a carry state. It is also a stand your ground state. It is also, um, so keep all of those in mind, and police instituted a no-knock warrant. Um, she was actually not the person they were looking for, to your point. They already had those folks in custody, and they instituted a no-knock warrant, and because they didn't tell anyone in the house that they were police, the boyfriend responded and tried to protect her, and they opened more than 40 shots into the house, killing, I think she was hit eight times yeah. um, while she was like half awake. 
a little bit after midnight. And to your point, yes, she did not, her story, the murder, her murder did not receive nearly the type of attention that George Floyd um, received. Even when you look at the fundraising effort, I believe we, we raised over $12 million for George Floyd's family memorial fund. And her fund raised less than $2 million. Um, money is not important, but it's symbolic of even within a, a crisis like the killing of Black people by police, there's still gender discrimination. Um, and that's something that we've dealt with in the civil rights, since the civil rights movement, right, where the stories, the leadership of Black women have been erased, um, or the intersectionality of how those issues particularly impact them as women. Um, and so a lot of the conversation now has been, how do we talk more about women who have been brutalized by the police? How do we talk about trans women, right? How do we expand the conversation from just saying, if we're gonna say black lives matter, we have to talk about every black life within that, within those communities, even the ones that folks still wanna pretend like doesn't exist. And so, um, you know, it's a battle that we continue to fight because women, the murder of women are never, has never received the, the type of national attention that George Floyd did. And it's interesting because I would assume that the circumstances leading up to her murder would have made more regular people feel like that could have been me. Um, but it wasn't until I guess, and, but I guess because people saw George Floyd's murder on camera that it also made that much more um, realistic for them, if that makes sense, in a weird mm. way. Mm. So I remember um, reading something on your social media uh, the Monday, the Monday after, um, you know, those, those first protests and you basically saying, you know, I don't know how to explain to the people I work with on Monday that I lived a year, you know, in this last yeah. couple of days or in this last week. And it really hit me at just how you are someone who is educating us all is keeping us informed. I mean, you are a, you have a huge social media following. It seems growing by the minute and rightfully so. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you, you, I would imagine are processing tremendous pain at the yeah. same time. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you kind of live both sides? To be absolutely honest, I don't think I'm processing it. Um, I don't think I've processed since it's crazy. Cause so before I joined Hillary campaign, for those who don't know, um, I, I was a, I went to Baton Rouge for the Baton Rouge um, uprising after another police murder, um, and I was there for almost two weeks during the marches, interacting with the police, and then I joined um, Hillary campaign. And to be honest, I, I feel like I've just been moving constantly since then, um, and I don't think I'm processing, which I think is actually a representation of a lot of people, not just people in the movement, but just black folks in America who every day you couldn't be experiencing some form of systematic trauma. And there's no space to heal because you have to deal with the next thing, right? There's no like period of, of real mourning and reconciliation. There's no period of mourning because there's something else that's gonna happen or has happened. And that is very clear even now, right? I just recently heard that two black trans women were murdered um, in the last few days. And now I'm thinking about, well, how do I use my voice to do that? And so I don't, I don't think I'm processing, um, but I do think I'm, I'm trying to limit the amount of energy I give people that I don't feel like are genuinely interested in improving themselves or improving the conditions that impact me. Mm. 
And I think that helps somewhat. Yeah. <laughs> and also I have a puppy. And so he <laughs> makes me um, go outside and take in, you know, the air and like slow walk through the neighborhood. And I think that helps. Yeah. Yeah. True. I mean, nothing, nothing like a dog or a pet to like mm-hmm. bring you back to back to earth and have, have to care for yourself and caring for them. So that's, that's exactly. I'm glad you have that. That's critical. Yeah. I got to remember to eat because I got to feed him. <laughs> exactly. I, I feel the same way about my kids. <laughs> I got to remember to eat because I got to feed them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's terrible. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, certainly the, the, the crisis of killing black people and the protests this month um, mm-hmm. are intersecting with many issues and many considerations, among them sort of how social media can be used both to educate and elevate. But it has also been used, as we know, to suppress, mm-hmm. to hate on, to confuse. Yeah. Um, and, and can you talk a little bit about the, the confusion um, that, that came about from Blackout Tuesday? Um, and how the effort originally started as the show must be paused mm-hmm. uh, by two women in the music industry to take the day off from the use of social media content to amplify black voices. But obviously it, it got inadvertently shifted to something else. And I will say I did, you know, I, I didn't, I, I posted my black screen with Blackout Tuesday. I, I at least knew enough not, not to put Black Lives Matter, but I... Mm-hmm you know, I think a lot of us wanting to support may make the wrong move. And I think that's okay. People are fearful of speaking up and speaking out because they feel like they don't have all the language, know all the knowledge. And I want to say, I think that's okay to not always have the right answers. And I think that Blackout Tuesday is genuinely, everyone was confused. I was even confused up until the day before because I'm just like, this makes no sense. Like, why are we going? I was going to do it because if, the, if, asked, if everyone was going to do it and they felt like it was necessary, but I still didn't get why it made sense. And then the more people told me that it was actually created for an entirely different reason, which you explained, um, it made me realize that because social media is so accessible, because so many people are on there and because it's hard to really discern who is a legitimate source of information, who isn't, that there's always going to be misinformation. And so I would just encourage more folks that, you know, before you post something, before you tag something, to just do your due diligence. Like if there are folks who are um, either an expert in women's rights or an expert in um, LGBTQ issues or an expert in Black Lives Matter, find them, see what they're saying and try to... um, you know, reflect your messaging to support the the ideology that they're pushing out. But I think it, it, those it's going to continue to ha- it's going to happen. I think anytime you have um, mass media, social media, there's going to be opportunities for misinformation. Um, and I don't want that to deter anyone from getting involved. But I will say is that expand who you consider to be valuable sources and um, ask questions. You know, there's nothing wrong with asking questions. That w- that's what a lot of people started to do, and it enabled for people to start taking away the hashtag before it flooded um, social media too late. So, you know, yeah, it was, it was a confusing day. And I was just like, Oh my God, it's only Tuesday. Y'all stressing me out. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So obviously we know protests are spreading all over the country. You mentioned a lot of young people getting out there, you know, some people not feeling that it's safe to be out mm-hmm. there because of the coronavirus. Obviously, you mentioned that. Um, 
what can people do right now if if they want to right now short term not long term short term show their support you know maybe they want to get out there and protest maybe not because you know they're they are they're worried about the the virus i mean quite frankly what is so inspiring to me is how many people are out with this virus yeah right? i mean who you know i mean everything's shut down and basically people are like no i'm going out anyway mm-hmm. it's 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 really inspiring actually that it's like actually this is more important yeah and and in many ways you think about that it's like i'm willing to risk my health and potentially my life to speak up for what's right. I mean, it's a, yeah, I, I find it inspiring. No, it definitely is inspiring. And I, I stand with my comrades. Um, and actually I should have mentioned this in the last, one of the things in which I've been able to like process and like take in what's going on is that I've decided that I'm only going to participate on pro- in protests during the weekend. Cause realistically I have to work full time. I can't. And also mentally, I just can't do it every single day. Um, but for those who are listening, one, you don't have to do it all, right? There's no, there's no reason for you to feel like you have to be at every march or you even have to go to the march. You need to uniquely, you need to figure out what you uniquely can provide to the movement. Um, and that's everything from elevating the, the stories on Instagram. That's everything from asking your company to review its racial discrimination or its diversity um, initiatives. It's um, fundraising and actually pushing money into local organizations versus just these national um, criminal justice or uh, racial relations, um, ra- racial justice organizations. While they're doing amazing work, the vast majority of the work is happening in communities, in neighborhoods like New York, like DC, like Boston, like so many other cities. And so um, you can do something from where you sit and it doesn't have to always physically be at a march. Um, but we need everyone to do something. And that's that's oftentimes even just having conversations with your family members, right? Um, about not why black people deserve rights, but why, what about whiteness has allowed you to assume that that black people don't deserve rights, right? And how have we allowed the United States, how have we allowed colonialism, how do we allow European-centric mindset to really impact all of us and make us not live in a world that actually is conducive to our health, that enables all of us to feel safe and prosper, right? This, we've all, we all are suffering at the hands of oftentimes the most privileged and successful people within our communities. Um, and it has put all of our safety and well-being at risk. So after the, the protests die down and this isn't in the news on a minute by minute basis and celebrities aren't talking about it on social media. How do we make sure there is long-term impact? Policy, 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 which means voting, which means filling out the census, right? Um, For instance, the census is important because it's going to decide where trillions of dollars are allocated throughout the country over the next decade. Voting is important because it actually says that you are putting your moral values on the line and actually voting with your moral values and ensuring that the policymakers, and this is not just talking about president, right? This can be everything from who is your block captain, who is your city council member, who are the judges within your community, because all of them impacts actual systems or represent systems that oppress communities of color. Um, And then I would also say, you know, that it really requires for us to look at 
brands and companies that hire, fire, engage communities um, in the programs that they or the policies that they implement. Um, but it's going to take a constant culture shift, but which means we have to continue the conversation even if the marches aren't still going on, even if we also need to, one, continue the conversation and continue to learn. Um, there's so many there's so many great resources and material out there to learn more and engage more. Um, you mentioned at least when we first got on that like you you're just so much more aware and awoke. And I think it's because learning is a process. We're all I didn't like even when I started being an activist, I still didn't understand immigration issues. I still didn't understand LGBTQ issues. Right? I had to learn those things along the way. Um, and if you really care about black liberation, if you really care about equality and equity, then you have to learn the necessary information to be able to advocate for us, um, adequately, um, and more importantly, to be able to take that advocacy back into the places where you live, work and thrive, um, to continue to, you know, talk about those issues. I always tell people that it's not what people say when you're in the room is what they say when you're not, um, Mm. Because I think that's the most powerful thing is how are people championing you even when you're not in spaces to champion yourself. Mm. You know, it's interesting that, that, you know, you say that because I think for a long time, I thought, well, I don't want to be a voice for black women. They should be a voice for themselves. And, you know, I can't, you know, I can't ever completely understand. Um, but I, I think I'm now really just kind of had that breakthrough moment and I, and I, you know, should have come sooner, but I think really this, this moment of, of realizing, wait, you want men to be involved in fighting for women's issues. You want men to speak for women when women are not in the room, as you mm-hmm. say, right? Yeah. This is, this is the exact same thing. And you know, but, but of course, just like any man getting into women's issues, he has to get educated. He can't just start spouting off what, what it is that women need. And, you know, it is really time to, to do that deep work, to really understand and be sure that you aren't, you know, doing any harm in being a voice, but it is important, particularly for white people to, to, uh, to be a voice. I have to say, I think one of the strongest sort of um, you know, sort of, uh, slogans, I guess, that I've been seeing around, um, is end white silence. Mm-hmm. I think that, and to me, that is the difference is not just say, this is horrific what happened, but to say, you had a role in this, you as in me, each of us, and it's up to you, not the activists, not amazing black women that we support, but actually you have to get involved in this. You have to use your voice. And as we know, you know, um, the women's movement for a long time has not put black women at the center. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's it even been interesting to me. I've been watching that, that the fabulous, this is America oh, yeah. um, on Hulu, which I love. Okay. And yeah, it's so good. And, you know, to see like, wow, you know, the way there was so much, um, there were just so many concerns and, and, and so many different, uh, you know, segments and, and sort of fighting for power and, and that black women felt sidelined, that they had to have their own movement. And, you know, to think, you know, how much further along are we today on that journey? And obviously, you know, we're celebrating a hundred years of women getting the right to vote, but yet, Black women really didn't get the right to vote until 
really much later. I mean, in actuality, it's different on paper, as we all know. Yeah. So how do we better think about intersectionality? Um, as we fight for gender equality, I thought what Ka was saying was so absolutely fascinating um, on the call that we all joined, you know, and, you know, white women want black women to be women first and black yeah. second. I thought, whoa, that's, that's, a, that's an intense sentiment. Mm-hmm. So h- how do you think we can all become better at that? It's such a hard question. Um, Right. Because to Ka's point, it's like every I don't get to choose how I show up in the world. Um, I'm told in the black community, um, traditional black activists will tell you that, you know, we need to just focus on the race. And then in the women's movement, it's just like we need to just focus on the gender. When in all actuality, these things impact my life very differently because I'm not only a woman, but I'm a woman of color. And I think as we to your point earlier, it's like silence will not protect us. Um, but more importantly, um, silence and action is the difference between being an ally and being an accomplice, right? Like, how are you actively um, utilizing your beliefs to transform how people think? Um, and I think it really is important that as folks say that they are a an, an ally in a community or they're a champion on a specific issue, that they think about those who are at the margins of those issues that are not at the table, that they don't see in the room, right? How are they opening doors? How are they um, communicating the need for more representation and more storytelling of those communities? Um, because I think it's, it's hard for oftentimes people to automatically adapt um, you know, intersectionality, understanding without first understanding who the stories and the people behind those experiences. And so I think the first step is like ensuring that we are creating space for more people um, at the table. And in many cases, just removing the table overall to ensure that there's no hierarchy and who has a say and what changes or what um, the progress we make. Mm. Jamira, thank you so much for taking so much time to talk to us today and just thank for you. all you do and for being an incredible ally. And I think also for saying what you said about don't worry about making mistakes along the way, because, you know, I think all of us need need to know that it's that it is OK and that it's going to happen just in the same way, you know, as men step up to work on combating violence against women, they're going to make mistakes and we have to welcome people in and say, we need, we need a broad coalition of people. Um, so thank you so much for all you do. And we are, we are in awe of you and, um, and following all you do very closely. Thanks for listening to the special edition of the Vital Voices podcast. We hope that you're doing all you can to keep yourselves, your families, your teams, and your communities safe and healthy. If you'd like to support our work with women leaders in this country and around the world, you can donate to Vital Voices on our website at vitalvoices.org. Or you can text VITAL, V-I-T-A-L, to 41444. That's VITAL to 41444. Stay safe and remember that we will get through this unsettling time together.